Well, um, welcome everybody. Um, and um, thanks very much for uh, joining the session and thanks for your patience. I won't take long um, to introduce our speaker, Professor Miriam Cherry. This is Paul Benjamin here. Unfortunately, I can't get my video to work, but Miriam's going to be talking to us on California's gig battles, technologies and trends in the US labor market. And many of you will have some knowledge of this um, in terms of various attempts to regulate different forms of, of platforms um, that has often crept even in, into our press. But Miriam has a, a doctorate from Harvard Law School. Um, she's currently uh, at um, an employment law center and uh, professor, uh, associate D dean of research and engagement at St. Louis University School of Law. And she's about to move um, to um, St. John's University in New York City. Um, so with that, Miriam, over to you. And th thanks so much for making yourself available to speak as part of our series. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for the introduction, and thank you to, our, to the audience, and thank you for, for sticking with us through the, um, some of the technical difficulties. So what I'm going to do today is to talk with you a little bit about what has been currently going on in California, some of the statutory changes, some of the regulatory changes that are happening there, specifically in regard to construction of the term employee. Um, so let me go ahead and I'm going to share my screen because I've got uh, quite a few slides. All right. Um, let's see. Can someone give me a verbal, I can't uh, see faces anymore, uh, a verbal uh, uh, agreement that you can see my slides? Someone just let me know. All good, thank you. Okay, great. Okay, so um, at where I'm drawing on this uh, material that I'm drawing on here in order to talk about what's happening in California and what I'm terming the gig battles, and we'll, we'll get into why I'm, why I'm using that particular terminology. But uh, I, I'm writing about this because I've been fascinated about the technology pretty much since I started in the academy. Uh, I've been writing about the gig economy specifically since um, early 2010s, um, actually earlier than that, I think 2009, 2008. Um, I've always been interested in collaborative technology that enables labor, especially transnationally. And so this talk is really going to draw on some of my other writing about the gig economy, which you can see here, uh, listed a taxonomy of virtual work in 2011. Um, all the way to an article that I'm going to draw on in this um, talk as well, which is Employment Status for Essential Workers, the Case for Gig Worker Parity. So I think the issue has come full circle. Some of the questions that initially, you know, mapping out this area of what virtual work looks like and what is going on with, with work that comes to people on cell phones uh, and various other technologies and work of the future, I'm sort of coming around back to it, looking at it through the lens of the pandemic. And uh, I was talking with uh, Professor Benjamin, Paul Benjamin, before we started about my book, Work in the Digital Age. And so this is actually a course book that goes through many of the technologies and the impact that they're going to be having, that they either have currently on work or that they'll have in the future of work. 
So um, some of the characteristics that I specifically, you know, have pulled out and identified as crucial elements of trying to identify on-demand economy type work is that there's some certain characteristics we can look at, including the placement within the information society, the fact that we've got globalization, so click workers or people who are working remotely um, are often doing so in a situation where you have workers in many countries in a platform like Upwork, for example, you've got um, workers in many countries, you've got a platform located in another country, and then you've got requesting or hiring entities in many more countries. So this really is changing, I think, the, the way that people have traditionally thought about the regulation of work, which has traditionally been very localized and very narrow um, type of jurisdiction. Um, it, it, the, new, the new kinds of work also, and specifically platform work, really focus on trust and reputation proxies. So using ratings, for example, um, to attempt to sort out who's doing a good job versus who is not. Um, and that feeds into another point here, the management of workers by algorithm. I know that the last speaker in the series talked with you a bit about this, so um, I won't talk too much about this. But there's also a, a, a significant use of data and surveillance in order to track what workers are doing, as well as this sort of being an extreme form of the just-in-time scheduling that many um, uh, traditional businesses, uh, in, at least in the United States, have been using. And so um, for more on this, uh, I, I talk a little bit about this in the 2016 article, Beyond Misclassification, The Digital Transformation of Work, uh, basically looking at the ways that work, the structure of work is, you know, it's been significantly changed because of the uh, nature of these technologies that move further and further away from standard types of employment. So for a long time, and I know your last speaker uh, in the series talked about this too, uh, but that, that the main issue seems to really be this question of employee status. And so I am in St. Louis, so this is actually the St. Louis Gateway Arch. And so I like to talk about this as a gateway into employment protections, labor employment protections. And where this seems to have gone wrong uh, after the Silicon Valley, so I, I talk about the gig battles of California, and in fact, where this all started was in California and Silicon Valley and then in San Francisco as sort of the proving ground of many of these apps. Um, but the problem started in California early in the 2010s and most gig platforms were using these labels in click-through agreements on their websites that talked about independent contractors to refer to those who are using their websites, those who are using their apps and performing work. And in fact, there's an entire, I could go into this, but there's an entire double speak of names that are given to people who work on platforms. Anything not to call them workers. They might be ninjas, they might be ruse, they might be experts, but not workers. So um, the, the problem ended up being, uh, when these cases ended up going to court, the, the problem ended up being that big work has some of these aspects of independent contracting, including flexibility, payment by task, and the fact that workers bring their own tools to the job, for example, Uber drivers bringing their cars. But gig work also had these aspects of an employment relationship because there was basically no control over any aspect of the work. It was managed by algorithm and uh, detailed out down to minutiae. And the work that was being performed was integral to the business of the software application. In fact, it couldn't run 
if there were no workers. So it's a sad day when you're trying to kill an Uber and there's no cars anywhere. The software only gets you so far. It's really the work that you that, that you want to receive as a customer. So um, this has led to this isn't just in California, by the way. So we're gonna get into California in a minute, but this is all over the this is all over the world that this has caused problems under the existing definitions of what an employee is. And they are inconsistent decisions now. So um, I, I know that you've heard about this in previous uh, talks, but you know we have France, um, Italy, Switzerland, uh, Uruguay, actually, and now a draft European directive that would make gig workers uh, the definition of gig workers that would be included in the category of employees. We can see an intermediate category in the UK, but then there are some decisions as well. Um, saying that gig workers are independent contractors. So Australia had a case a few years ago, um, Panama. And so we can see these decisions getting decided and this is, it's contradictory and it's the exact same work that's being performed by the way, right? And, and because these, um, these apps have become globalized and, and they work in much the same way in uh, almost every country where they operate. Focusing back, I didn't put the United States on here and that's because we don't really have a definitive answer in the United States. So we have um, you know, a federal system in which we have a National Labor Relations Act, uh, but we also have various federal and state employment laws and they all contain their own various definitions of what an employee is. So recently there's some case law developing um, the Third Circuit, which is a part of the Eastern United States, a federal court uh, that's an appellate court in, um, in the northeastern part of the United States. And it reversed the lower court that had said that rideshare drivers were independent contractors. So the implication was that they were going to be employees and unless the court found that, um, it, was, it would continue to be reversed. So that was sort of a, a, a piece coming out during the pandemic, the very beginning of the pandemic um, that had said they're employees. Uh, former President Donald Trump had issued, and it had, had his NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, issued an advice memo uh, that had said gig workers, this is back in 2019, gig workers were independent contractors. Now it's expected that this will be rescinded, and President Biden um, has endorsed a national ABC test. But then the states have their own issues and what I'm terming here, gig battles, especially in California. And so when I refer to gig battles, I mean this back and forth. It is like a war over whether these um, rideshare drivers in particular, but gig workers more generally are going to be considered employees or independent contractors. And so we can see that each piece of this involves a different branch of the government. And there's an interplay um, of powers between different pieces of the government in California. Um, so, um, it, I'm going to go through a timeline of this, but basically there's there there's there's four pieces to this now. It was a trilogy, and now I don't know what you call that. Uh, it's four parts anyway. Um, maybe uh, you know uh, Dynamex Junior or something. There's just going there's just various pieces of this in the saga that is still continuing. So I'll go into this in a little more depth. Um, there's the focus of my talk today is California skate battles, and to give you a timeline of all of this. So as I said, the, the platform started up in California in the late aughts and then early 2010s. 
And then workers were challenging this classification as independent contractors because they wanted things like various benefits, they wanted unemployment. Um, all of this depends and hinges on that definition of employee. And so um, they brought cases in 2014 um, in front of uh, the Northern District of California, a federal court, to try to enforce their rights under the Fair Labor Standards Act for minimum wages. So that's originally how these cases got started. And it looked like they were going to go to trial, actually. The, the judge had said the following, um, and this is Judge Vincent Chiapa said uh, following in, in 2016, I'm sorry, in 2015, um, as should now be clear, the jury in this case will be handed a square peg and asked to choose between two ground poles. The test that California courts have developed for classifying workers isn't very helpful in addressing this 21st century problem. Some factors point in one direction, some point in the other, and some are ambiguous. So that's, they were, they were about to have a trial, um, and then uh, there were some motions, and then in 2016, they ended up settling the case, that particular case, as well as a companion case. There were two cases, Cotter versus Lyft and O'Connor versus Uber, that were uh, put together in this, in this blanket settlement. And these cases settled for $100 million. But what they didn't do was to clarify the status of the workers moving forward. So there was no determination about whether moving forward, these drivers were going to be employees or independent contractors. It was a retroactive settlement. So really, it didn't solve very much. So back in 2016, California was using the control test in order to try to figure out that's the uh, case that, uh, that's the test that Judge Shihabra in the case was, was uh, saying uh, created two, two categories and he didn't know how to fit these together. So um, after the settlement, uh, the, the law really was um, confused and there were still cases being brought by workers who wanted to try gain access to employee benefits. So in 2018, um, the uh, California Supreme Court heard a case called a Dynamex. And this was a case that made headline news around the world. It made, um, made national news in the United States because it changed the test in California to become the ABC test. And I'll go into this a little bit more, but the ABC test is a broader test. It's a disjunctive test. You can meet A, B, or C, and then the workers presumptively classify as an employee, unless the employer um, can prove all of these points. And, and even one of them will lead to a finding of employee status. So it's a much more favorable test for finding employee status. And under this test, almost certainly the gig workers would have all been classified as employees. So then um, in an effort to try to codify, this wasn't, by the way, this wasn't just gig workers, this was all workers across the economy. So this is a major change. And so in an attempt to codify this and also to set out what some of the exceptions were, the California legislature under the um, leadership of Lorena Gonzalez, uh, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez passed uh, Assembly Bill 5. And that was, the, it, it was uh, set to go, it passed at the end of 2019, and it was set to go into action in 2020. Um, and during that year, this is during the beginning before the pandemic happened and during the pandemic, um, Uber and Lyft said that they were not, they just weren't going to comply with the law. Uh, they were challenging it in court. They didn't think they needed to reclassify. Um, and they put all of their efforts into a $200 million ballot initiative 
that was set to be heard in November of 2020. And Proposition 22 created this, it, it said it was billed as a way of actually getting, supposedly, right, getting more flexibility for drivers. And um, so preserving their, their status as independent contractors so they can have flexibility. And then they also um, created this new status for gig workers that was, uh, that had some of the rights that employees would have. And in the United States, we don't have the system in the UK. We have a binary system. Either you're an employee or you're an independent contractor. There isn't a category in between, or at least there wasn't until Proposition 22 passed in November um, 2020. But um, the saga wasn't over yet. There was a strange new category created. I was really fascinated by it. I've written an article about that intermediate category and how it operates in Spain and France and the UK and Germany, a few other countries. Uh, South Korea also has, a, has an intermediate category or something similar, a similar analog. So I'm really fascinated with this. So I really wanted to analyze what that category would be. Uh, it doesn't allow for union um, to join a union, but it does allow for certain things like a lawsuit for discrimination would be included. In, in any event, uh, my my interest in this was was stopped short by um, a court case that uh, occurred at the end of last year, so in 2021. Um, the Superior Court of California declared Proposition 22 unconstitutional. And I'll go a little bit into why, but now the rideshare platforms are attempting to fight that decision and appealing that. And so uh, in the words of Elton John, it's gonna be a long, long time. I'm not sure how, uh, how uh, long this will go on, um, but uh, there are some real problems with the way Proposition 22 is phrased and, and what has led to it being held unconstitutional. So that's what I mean by the gig battles right here, just as you can see from the timeline. And by the way, I have another representation of this as a, as a timeline um, here where we have um, you know, the articulation of the Dynamex test, we've got this broad ABC test, um, the California legislature passes AB5 uh, and the ABC test uh, to codify this into law. So the legislature takes action that goes into effect in 2020. In 2020, the gay companies refuse to comply, in fact, threaten to leave the state of California entirely. Um, and then in 2020, the California voters uh, in November of 2020 passed Proposition 22, this new status is created, and then the last piece is that it's, it's held unconstitutional. So um, just so uh, people are aware, uh, going back through this, the Dynamex case from 2018 established this ABC test. So this is gonna sound very familiar because these tests exist in various parts of the world, but here the presumption is that you're an employee unless the employer, the burden, it, the burden to show this is on the employer, uh, unless the, the employer um, can prove all of these are, are not uh, pointing towards employee status. So uh, the first is the control test that incorporated the old law, the old standard in California that was based on control. Um, services outside the work that is typically done by the hiring entity. So you have the employer would have to show this really is a separate uh, separate business. It's not something we do. You know, if you're an educational uh, institution and you have to hire in contractors to come build part of the building, uh, if they're part of a separate company, that's not what you do. You're an educational institution. They would be outside um, of the work that is typically done. But that's very hard for platforms to show 
for the reasons I mentioned before, these platforms really depend on the service providers to create value for their, uh, for their aggregate of customers. And finally, the workers practicing a separate or independent occupation or business. And this is also difficult for uh, gig platforms to be able to show. So under this test, it, it seemed almost certain that gig workers would be classified as employees. Um, and so I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit, but uh, there's a backlash to this. And so the gig companies um, spent $200 million, which is more money than has ever been spent on a ballot initiative in California before or since in the history of California. They took this directly to the voters. And um, this was a hundred million dollars of it came from Rideshare and the rest came from other uh, platform companies that contributed to this. And it exempted gig workers from the ABC test. And so under Proposition 22, gig workers became, um, they were still called independent contractors, but then they were given certain rights. So they could sue for discrimination, uh, but they still couldn't join a union. They were disabled uh, from this uh, from the union. And there's been quite a bit of an aftermath to this. So as I said here, I've already said, this is the most expensive ballot measure that's ever been taken in California. And I will say across the world, this has happened. We're seeing these same kinds of interplay between legislatures, courts, voters, lobbying by companies, lobbying by unions and workers uh, that are all taking place and that are leading to this sort of uneven um, construction of, of the law. Now, um, I mentioned that it was called, the uh, Proposition 22 was held to be unconstitutional. This was decided in Castellanos versus State, the case um, of it that was decided on August 20th, uh, 2021, so at the end of any part of last year. And like I said, this is still in the courts, but the main reason um, that this was held to be unconstitutional was that it, it was overreaching. The Vallon Initiative said that in order to overturn this, so since they were going against the legislature, they didn't want the legislature to just come back and vote and overturn the Vallon Initiative. So what they said was, um, in order for the legislature to overturn this uh, decision about the status of gig workers, it would require seven-eighths, a seven-eighths vote of the California Assembly, which is near to impossible to get. I mean, a majority is possible, but not a seven-eighths vote. That's, that's going to be very difficult to, to get uh, a change like that. And so it was actually that overreaching to try to enshrine this into the law um, that has led to it being, um, being unconstitutional because the court, in looking at this, said, as a matter of constitutional law, the California, California's assembly, California's legislature is vested with the ability to be able to regulate labor relations. And if this ballot initiative purports, this ballot initiative with the seven days requirement purports to take away that constitutionally delegated power to the legislature. So these two things are on a collision course. And so Proposition 22 um, has to be invalidated. So that's where things are, um, Currently, but um, as I said, you know, I, I brighter things are ahead <laughs> um, in terms of some of the other pieces that we'll talk about. So I had alluded to the Biden administration. I'm going to talk a little bit about the ongoing uh, case that they're hearing now and uh, where that's likely to go. Um, but in the meantime, this is still left unsettled while this issue gets heard in the courts. And so there's probably going to be a gig battles part five, the gig battles part six, um, and and we just have to stay tuned. But California is the world's 
seventh largest economy just on its own as a state. Uh, and as I said, the birthplace of these apps. So um, it's, it's very interesting to watch this play out. Uh, and it's not been a long process. It's, it's been a difficult uh, process in which there's been um, progress for workers and then there's been retrenchment and then there's been a lot of expense by companies um, which could have been used to provide some of the benefits, but, but wasn't. Um, and we're seeing similar kinds of stories. I, you know, I, I wanted to focus specifically on California in this talk, but I'll give you a quick tour of the rest of the U.S. too while I'm at it. Um, this, the city of Seattle attempted to do uh, something for its uh, rideshare workers. They wanted, they uh, not just wanted, they established sick and safe days back in 2015 um, for rideshare drivers and, and uh, have been able to get that passed. But they um, wanted to allow rideshare drivers to join unions to have that ability, right, get past that hurdle of being employees um, and, uh, and be able to bargain. But the problem is, you know, under the National Labor Relations Act, it's really a federal, uh, federal act in the United States. And so there's this question of preemption. Who is allowed to, to say that these uh, rideshare workers are eligible? And so the Chamber of Commerce the platforms went to court and they're still litigating over this issue, you know, uh, seven years later, um, if you can believe it. The New York City Council in 2021 uh, passed six bills that focused on basic rights to gig workers. And so they focused on uh, minimum wage standards, um, tips during the pandemic. So there was this thing called tip baiting where people would try to, you know, get a grocery delivery, but they wanted it really fast and they put on some huge tip. Um, in order to get better service. And then as soon as the items were delivered, they delete the tip. So it seems very misleading and like a bait and switch uh, type of thing. And, and uh, so the city council passed a rule against that. And then uh, bathroom access. So uh, this was a big deal during the pandemic. Um, delivery workers weren't allowed to use the bathrooms in restaurants. And this was uh, you know, met with an outcry, this is inhuman, we don't have a place to use the restroom, we can't wash our hands, um, this isn't clean. Um, and so the New York City Council passed some bills, but they, but they didn't, these are very basic rights, but they did not touch on the question of employee status or try to change, um, or try to change employee status. Um, and Austin, Texas actually had a very interesting saga as well. So talk about a battle um, that went on. Um, they were requiring some safety measures that at the time Uber didn't require. So they wanted to make sure that there was adequate insurance, that there were background checks on the drivers, um, you know, uh, requirements in terms of, you know, not having a certain number of points on your uh, license or, you know, traffic violations. And, um, the voters wanted this. Um, there was a ballot initiative where the voters made, um, voted in favor of having the, this increased regulation. Um, and Uber said, uh, it was up on the ballot, and Uber said, if you pass this uh, residence, we will withdraw from your town. So you should take it off the ballot initiative or vote against it. That didn't work. Um, the voters in Austin, Texas voted for these basic protections. And as a result, Uber left the market. But since that time, Uber actually ended up adopting all of these things that, that Austin wanted in the first place. And now they've snuck back in sort of, you know, underpinned. So they kind of, they, they wanted a share of that market uh, after all. So um, I had mentioned this, uh, some developments on the national level. Um, former President Trump's NLRB, you know, as I mentioned, had passed this, had 
witness advice memo saying that big workers are independent contractors. Uh, it's pretty clear the Biden administration isn't going along with that. Uh, Marty Walsh, uh, Secretary of Labor, has made it clear this policy is going to be reconsidered. And so it is being reconsidered. Uh, so again, this is just for membership, employee status for, for the purpose of membership in unions and collective bargaining. And so it's being uh, determined in a case actually about the Atlanta Opera. So the Atlanta Opera is unionized. There are some questions about who fits within the definition of employee to bring into the union. And so there's actually a uh, briefing on this and a decision is expected any day. I've been waiting for it. I check my alerts every day uh, because I'm so, uh, <laughs> I want to find out what happens on the national level, which I think will be very instructive, I think, for some of the state. Uh, state rules. Okay, um, so I realized we started late um, and I uh, really have gone through my material in California. I guess I'll just, I'm going to end this talk by, by discussing a little bit or talking a little bit about how the pandemic has affected gate worker status. And for those of you who are interested in this, I mentioned I have an article coming out in the Loyola, uh, Loyola uh, Los Angeles Law Journal on this. And you can find it on my SSRM page, uh, or I'm sure the organizers can uh, send around the link when this is done. But uh, gig work in the, in the United States was seen, was put into this category of essential work while the pandemic was happening. So well, it, it, had a, it, it had an enormous change. Uh, the pandemic had an enormous change on work generally in the United States. So 42%, which is an incredible number, of workers in the United States shifting to online work in the first month after the pandemic started. And frontline workers were applauded, they were called heroes, they were recognized for their contributions, there was a, a collective understanding that people were putting themselves, before the vaccine, people were really putting themselves in harm's way. And Americans were relying increasingly on these big platforms, on these on-demand platforms, to deliver their meals, to get them groceries, to get them their medications, and to get other goods that they needed um, to their homes. And so this is what I call the essential worker paradox. While the gig workers were, were on the front lines and, and still are on the front lines of the pandemic, um, at the same time, they were denied access to basic employee rights, and they're still not called employees, right? Um, and, and maybe we'll see things change on a, at, at the federal level, as I said, or maybe we'll see things change uh, in court as a result of the gate battles of California. But, you know, right now, um, they're struggling to be recognized and to just try to claim those benefits. So their work is considered essential and they're labeled essential, but the workers themselves are not treated as essential. In fact, they're treated as less than employees. They don't have those same rights. And not only that, um, I'm going to propose that they've been treated worse in many ways because they're, they've been treated as, you know, disposable. Um, and so this is what I call the essential worker paradox throughout the paper. On the one hand, you're very valued. On the other hand, you're not uh, under the law. Uh, but I think the distinction really is that the work, it's the work separated from the workers. And we know that under the ILO definitions, um, the uh, Declaration of Philadelphia, this is uh, contrary to those documents that say, you know, we, we should not treat the work as being separated from the worker. Um, that is a, that's almost a, not almost, that is a human rights violation. Um, but that's what we're really um, seeing during, during the pandemic. And, and this has some consequences because in the United States, gig workers, um, 
didn't just to get sick days. Uh, you, you got paid based on the job you did for the job. And this is important, especially during a pandemic, because studies show that workers who don't have paid sick leave are more likely to go to work sick. So this is a key factor in why, we, in one of the key factors in why the United States has had such bad outcomes in the pandemic. Um, and this, this uh, problem is just compounded for gig workers. As I said, they're only being paid by the task. In the United States, you know, out of the 50 states, only 16 states actually mandate sick leave, paid sick leave, and those laws only apply to employees. Now, it's not a one for one, right? Um, essential workers and gig workers aren't exactly the same thing. Um, essential workers, you know, this is, I, I went back in the history to try to find out what this really meant, because if you pick up a labor and employment law textbook from today um, that was published before the pandemic, you don't see any mention of essential workers in the United States. But um, there's a group of gig workers that are essential, that are doing things like running groceries to people, and then there are gig workers who are doing things like data entry or translation services or other quick work that aren't frontline work and aren't essential. And there's plenty of essential workers who are in person who are and who are not on a gig platform. Um, and so those are essential workers who are not gig workers, they're not on a platform. But what this has done is really lead to, and this is my this is gonna be my last argument in the talk. Um, what this has led to is even more um, uh, more of a reason to think about employee status for gig workers. So let's take a look at this chart that I put together um, on my slide. Employee uh, status and gig work and uh, gig work slash independent contractors are on the left. And then on uh, the top, we have essential worker and a non-essential worker. So in trying to classify these, I thought it was helpful to just kind of break this down into categories and have these quadrants. And so if we think about a restaurant delivery driver who just works for one restaurant. They're an employee and they're also an essential worker because they're providing frontline type work, right? They're, they're in a restaurant, they're delivering to people's houses, they're interacting with people. Um, so they're an essential worker and they have employee status. But if we have the same, same job, right? Delivering food, going to, into restaurants, delivering it to people's homes, and they work for Grubhub, a platform, they're still a delivery driver, they're still doing the exact same work, but they're going to be gig workers now. They're independent contractors, maybe, question mark. But they're, they're not employees right now anyway, so question mark. Um, so that doesn't make sense. We have an unfairness between quadrant one and quadrant two. We have the same thing in quadrant three and quadrant four. The accountant um, working for a firm nine to five is an employee. But if they're on Upwork, if they're on a platform, they're, you know, they're an independent contractor under the terms of service. So that's unfair because they're also doing the same exact work as an accountant, but one is an employee and one is in, is in this category of question mark independent contractor. But where the, so there's, there's uh, problems between unfairness between category three and category four as well, the same type as between one and two. But the real <laughs> problem and inequity here I would, um, I would say, is look at quadrant two, the Grubhub delivery driver who's doing essential work, you know, who before the vaccine was putting themselves in harm's way um, in order to get food to people, and compare them to category three, an accountant for a firm who's working remotely from home, not doing any essential services, um, and is considered an employee. 
So I would say there's two types of unfairness going on, but that the real, uh, I, I think what the pandemic laid there is just that this these categories uh, really need to be re-envisioned um, in order to understand uh, the types of work that people are doing and to recognize the, the heroic work that, that um, gig workers did during the pandemic. A couple more words about this. I will just say essential workers, you know, where did this term come from? Uh, this fascinated me endlessly looking at uh, U.S. history and then, and then even some European history to try to figure this out. Uh, in, in the United States, this was really used uh, during the Second World War. Um, and um, specifically, you know, the Rosie the Riveter was a major figure in U.S. history, right? Women are going to come into factories and uh, manufacture war material in an effort to um, make sure that uh, the U.S. Um, can help win the war in, in Europe. And, um, and so we've got, uh, you know, we, we've got opportunities that were being extended for the first time to women workers, to workers of, of color, and a real opening of opportunities that haven't been there because of segregation. Uh, and so we see that this is expanded because this is called in the documents at the time, essential work. We need all hands on deck. This is essential work. These are essential workers. And so some of the barriers that had been there to women's employment um, were suddenly uh, dropped, right? Because this is essential, this is important. Um, and that's really the last time that that term was used. And, and then here we are, right? It came back in the pandemic. And I think there's been a recognition based on this type of work that gig work is important. It's not, and in the paper I argue this, that, that really when gig work started, when I started looking at it back in the 2000, early 2010s, People said to me, oh, that's just kind of a game, right? It comes to you on your cell phone. It's just some game. Or maybe you're doing that just to make a little extra money, but it's not a real job. I think increasingly with the pandemic, there's a recognition that gig work is important. It's not just something that's frivolous, you know, oh, hey, go park my car for me while I go to a restaurant. Um, or, uh, you know, it's not um, something that is just for convenience. The uh, CEO of TaskRabbit liked, liked to tell the story um, about the founding of the company, uh, saying, I, I was out of dog food and I realized I was going out for drinks with a friend. Uh, my husband and I were going out for drinks. We realized we needed the dog food right away. Um, wouldn't it have been great if we could have hired someone to just go pick it up for us right then? And that's how TaskRabbit um, started. But, but so it, it almost pushed this narrative that these workers were doing things that were just frivolous, they were just for convenience sake. They certainly didn't need employment protections. It's only a side hustle or a second job moonlighting that someone's doing. Um, and it's also invisible. You know, when things just show up at your doorstep and you don't really think about the fact that it took someone quite a bit of time in order to get what you needed from the store or to put it into bags and deliver it to your house. And so I think that the technology, unfortunately, has facilitated this view of gig work as invisible work. But as I said, I think this is changing um, because of the importance that was recognized of this work during the pandemic. And, and the current um, crisis has provided a moment where some employee rights did become available to gig workers because there was federal legislation, the CARES Act, and I can talk more about this in the questions um, if anybody's interested uh, to talk more about this, about what the CARES Act did in the United States. But it, it provided unemployment insurance for the first time to platform workers. So we've got 
arbitrarily, you know, uh, kicked off a platform or the platform said, you know, we, we can't use you anymore. Uh, there isn't much demand. Um, they were eligible for unemployment for the first time. And it also provided, finally, a paid sick leave that was available. So in the paper, I argue that temporary protections are one thing, um, but that these shouldn't be temporary. These should be made permanent. Um, you know, pandemic or no, um, sick days are important. Um, and so is uh, job, uh, job welfare protections like unemployment insurance. But uh, some of the additional protections are also needed. And as I say here, you know, I think gig workers have earned parity with employees. What, what will it take for us to be able to recognize it? Um, and I think on that note, that's, uh, that's probably where I'm going to leave it. I'll stop sharing and I will uh, turn it over to all of you if, if you have questions or comments. Um, and I just thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, thanks very much, Miriam. Um, so I, I'm, I still don't have access to the video, um, but you know, thank you uh, on two levels. One is um, I'm very envious of, of people like you who are able to um, produce such beautiful slides, um, together with um, you know th th those interesting and and often witty illustrations. And I think. We should have you back in a while to do a, a seminar on on good slide presentations because I just tend to have the the rather plain lawyers black letter um, overheads. Um, I think you know I'm going to throw the, um, the the the, um, the debate open to the floor and and anyone who wants to speak, if you could um, uh, you know indicate by putting your hands up online. Uh, I mean, the issue that interests me is, is just one of the um, similarities between South African law and the, um, the California approach is that our legislation does have an ABC type test um, within, in, inside of a, a presumption of employment. Um, so that, you know, organizational control or economic dependence are sufficient to make you an employee um, linked to some more and it does seem to me if one's looking at, um, you know, we're looking at all the, the expanded definitions and the possibilities of, of you know, worker definition, you know, moving from employee to worker on the sort of, as has been suggested in the UK in, in particular. But I just wondered what your thoughts were on how a, an ABC type definition would operate in the context of, um, of platform work, whether one can have a general presumption or one has to, you know, presume particular types of work to, to be employment. So that was just my, uh, an, an initial issue. I'm sure others will have, have similar points. Um, is there anyone else who wants to, um, you know, raise questions at, at this point or, or make comments? Can respond to the ABC, uh, sure. ABC test question, and then if anyone wants to jump in or ask more questions, happy to do so. Uh, first, I guess I'll say thank you for the compliment about my slides. Uh, I'm happy 
we should chat offline. Um, I had a teaching mentor who showed me how to do slides way back in the day. Um, and, you know, less text is better. He always told me, try to use illustrations that will uh, be catchy for people. But uh, so I teach an introductory class at uh, my school, which I'll continue to teach at St. John's on contract law. And so I have a lot of illustrations and things for that class. Um, in, in any event, uh, the ABC test is interesting um, to me because it's there are parts of the United States that will use the ABC test. Uh, it's like 28 states will use it for one specific statute. They'll use it specifically just for unemployment, or they'll use it just in their test for discrimination. Um, but but what's what's puzzling is that there's so many definitions. Uh, what would be nice about the proposed, um, well, there's many things that would be good about this, but the proposed change uh, shift under the NLRA to define, to use, uh, to use a broader test for employment. Right now they're using the super shuttle test. And if they decided to use this uh, broader test that looks like the ABC test for Atlanta Opera, it would have a real impact on how many people could unionize. And, and you know, in some ways it, it, it sounds very doctrinal to just look at the tests you know, much of what I've been talking about has been political movements, you know, spending $200 million to get a ballot initiative passed or the legislature coming back and passing some law. Um, and, and so that's that's like just making this question of status almost, you know, just a political question. But some of it really is a doctrinal question. You know, what test is applied does matter. Um, and the ABC test has this effect of making more workers employees. And so it really would open up, I think, if that, um, you know, while we're, while we're waiting for that um, uh, to come out in the Atlanta Opera, it would really have the benefit of making many more workers eligible to join the union. Yes, th thanks, Miriam. Um, Darcy? Uh, do you want to speak? Are you able to... Uh, Darcy Detoy, um, can you join in? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, th th thanks, Miriam. Um, that was very interesting, covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I would just like to briefly raise two, two questions. Um, one is one which I'm sure some of you have heard me make a hundred times before, and that is that the question of employment status is um, crucial, of course, you know, who's protected by the law, who is not. Um, but that to me is, is the first question um, in the sense that, let us say up to maybe 20 years ago or so, we didn't really have the, 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 the question of, you know, if there were no gig workers or anything like that. Essentially, we had the problem of non-standard employment, part-time, agency, um, temporary, and, and so on. And the, the problem then that we debated for many years was that labor law was designed for the standard em employee and is not very effective at protecting non-standard workers. And a lot of thought went into that. Now, it seems to me that broadening the concept of employee simply to cover more categories of non-standard workers will leave that original problem um, unsolved. And so, um, and I think it is re relatively simple, not very simple, but relatively simple, 
to, to find more comprehensive definitions of um, employee or of worker who should be covered to get away from the term employee, which has all that historical baggage. Um, but the, the crucial question then becomes, how do you translate the fundamental rights of all workers, including non-employees, into meaningful protection for those workers who are, if you like, non-standard workers, including gig workers? Um, so the, the debate seems to me to be at two levels. One is broadening the, the definition in whatever way you do it to cover all workers. But beyond that comes the real nitty-gritty. How do you now give substantive enjoyment of, of, of fundamental rights to those workers who don't fit into the categories of collective bargaining and all the other standard um, forms, institutions of labor law, what new institutions can be developed. And given the climate in the world, and you know, we all know where we are, um, persuading governments to take that up and persuading unions to take that up and I mean, that to me is a real, you know, maybe the new Wild West frontier. Um, and just linked to that perhaps is my own little take on you know, the, the various developments we've had in the broadening, broadening the scope of, of employment law, employment protection, worker protection. And if, if, if one looks at the ABC test and also some others, it seems to me that the, the old, what was called the organization test actually becomes quite crucial because it seems to me that, you know, control and, and, and all those aspects can be manipulated and diluted. But, but, but the bottom line is really um, whose business does the worker work for? Does the worker have his or her own business? Um, or does the worker participate in the business of the other party? And it seems to me quite, um, well, what, what the US, I think, Employment Tribunal, uh, Appeal Tribunal judge called faintly ridiculous for Uber to argue that every single driver is conducting his or her own business. Um, in, in that case, every wage worker is doing the same thing. The business consists of selling your labor power. And um, so obviously that there will still be debates and court cases and so on. But nevertheless, it seems to me a more difficult thing to obfuscate. Namely, this is my business. I am Uber. My money comes from people getting rides offered by drivers using my app. That is where my revenue comes from. You can hardly say that is not my business. It becomes more difficult to obfuscate. And I think the organization test should perhaps be given more recognition than it has enjoyed and for some time. Thanks. So that's Thanks. a great, yes, uh, if, I can, if I can respond, that's a great uh, thoughts and ideas to you. I mean, I completely agree, an Uber driver <laughs> on their own is in no, uh, no way able to really, they, they're told they're running, you know, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric about you, know, you can be your boss or drive, you can drive for yourself. Um, but they're not allowed to give out their information. That'll get you kicked off the platform. And Uber wants people to keep using Uber. And that doesn't mean working with a specific driver. So there's no way for these gig workers to really build a customer base or um, 
you know, uh, to do to do anything other than really, you know, just just give good rides and do a good job, uh, you know, accept a lot of the rides. Uh, and there's not really, you know, when we talk about flexibility. In recent years, uh, it's come out that Uber has a technique whereby they send drivers who are getting ready to log off. Uh, do you really want to log off because really you have another $50 waiting for you around the corner to try to get people to work more in shifts and they'll actually give bonuses uh, to drivers who are willing to work within a shift. So to some degree, this idea of flexibility, it may sound great. I don't think that's, it, but, but it's very hard to do that. Um, and originally the app was, was supposed to be doing that. Um, but it, it turns out it's very hard to coordinate that to make sure that supply and demand match up well and customers are happy and, and drivers are happy. Um, so, but, but yes, I, I agree with the assessment that the, the idea that they would be running their own businesses is, is ridiculous, faintly ridiculous in, in the words of the judge. Um, I guess the other thing I would respond to is, um, I traditionally have looked at gig work uh, as part of this move towards uh, precarious work and, as you said, non-standard employment and uh, David Weil's book, The Fisher Workplace, the idea that jobs are being broken down into small pieces and uh, outsourced and, and done so in a way that really harms people like uh, janitors in their office building, for example, that now are subcontracted and subcontracted out, whereas before they might have worked for the company that was in that office building uh, under standard employment. And so these are um, this is not just gig workers. I agree with you. This is a larger term, uh, trend. This, this predates uh, anything that was happening with the technology. I guess my question, and this is something I've posed to people before, um, and I've gotten different answers um, from different scholars and people who have been writing about this and thinking about this. Is the gig economy or the on-demand platform economy, is it really any different? And this is something that uh, some people have, have really tried to dismiss. You know, it's not really any different because things like giving people rides in your car, there were taxis for a long time, there were taxis back when there were horses and buggies, people did this all the time. Uh, couriers, that job exists, has existed for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, this isn't anything new. Uh, and then you get sort of people who are saying, but, but this allows for the aggregation of data and tracking in a way that really didn't exist before. Those kinds of things didn't have algorithmic management. They weren't globalized in, this, in the way that we're talking about with the platforms. So this is really something quite, quite different. And, and, and I think there's elements of both. You know, do you need specific regulation just for platform workers separating them out from this larger, uh, larger group of precarious or non-standard workers um, that are specific to them because of their platform? Or, you know, are we saying that if we increase the definition, we'll sort of bring more people under the ambit? I think I've been suggesting the second option. Um, but I've heard, I've heard various discussions and debates about, about what, you know, how are the, what the platform's doing, or is it anything really different from what went before? And is the regulation that is needed any, any different um, from what went before? Thanks, Mariam. Um, anybody else want to raise their hand? Um, we have a, a shy audience today, but um, I see there's some, some of our PhD students who are working on this topic. 
they don't have any questions and some some prominent lawyers but can i then i, I don't want to keep everybody and 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 it's been a, you know, a really excellent and um illuminating pre presentation um you know our position for instance as, as i understand it is is the, the only limit on an uber driver is that um uber sort of clocks you out at, at after 12 hours so in south africa as i understand it um Uber drivers can effectively work 84 hours a week um, and seven days a week. Um, no, I shouldn't mention Uber. Um, the um, um, just one question I'm intrigued about is you know you this, you talk about the sort of you know lots of effort is is put into different um, statutes and certainly you know. They're, they're, for instance, belonging to unions, one can't see any objection, even from you know from an employer perspective. Why, certainly in our law, why platform workers, even though they might not be able to effectively exercise that right, shouldn't have the right to form a union and you know the rights to declare disputes. And then, you know, rights that are annual leave, for instance, which we have, we have three weeks annual leave, one can't see, you know, the fact that that effectively Uber drivers have to save up to take leave rather than some form of payment and, and certainly our social security. Um, those could operate very easily for large platforms. And, you know, what, what, what platforms effectively do, it seems to me, is they hide behind the guys that, oh, well, you know, small employers very difficult to comply with labor law, but for, you know, for platforms with large, you know, expensive administrative systems, compliance would, would be quite easy for, for, for a range of things, you know, making a, a small payment to a social security fund every month or something, you know, you know, the, the, I suppose the, the one quite tricky issue is the, the issue of, um, you know, unlike America, we do have a statutory protection against unfair dismissal protection. Um, and, you know, a right to, 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 to arbitration, which oddly enough was probably initially based on the American contract arbitration model, um, but has now been uh, included in statute. But how would, I mean, is it, is it feasible to where people are sort of, you know, regulated, uh, was it uh, L logarithmically? Um, uh, is it feasible to regulate that on a fairness basis? Um, or is it, uh, you know, is, is that something that perhaps, you know, is, is too complex and one could perhaps impose some internal check, but beyond that, you know, opening, you know, in, in our case, an arbitration tribunal to thousands of, of platform workers might create disputes that probably in many ways can't be resolved or might not provide effective protection. I mean, if, you, if you have any thoughts on that. So, so this is very interesting. So as you're pointing out, and maybe I should have like backed up and started with this, that the United States 
has is is pretty much alone in the developed uh, developing context uh, of economies is, is pretty much alone in having the at will system. So what that means is if you haven't specifically entered into a contract for a term or you don't have union just cause protection, then you can be fired at any time for any reason, uh, good, bad, or for no reason at all, arbitrarily. Um, and this, I've, I've it sounds like it can't be right <laughs> because it's, and this is the law in 49 states, but um, this has been referred to as a, you know, a, a terrible rule for workers as a default. It's also been referred to as the genius of American industry. So it depends on who you talk to. Uh, business owners like this because they don't have to justify why it is that they're dismissing a worker and they say it's much more efficient. Uh, but as time has gone on, some of the bad reasons that were, you know, used to be given uh, are no longer acceptable under other statutes. So to say, you know, em employers have this vast discretion to fire people anymore uh, really is actually not the case. They can't, uh, they can't do that if people are uh, reporting things for public policy reasons, you know, violations of the law. They can't do this on the basis of religion, race. Uh, sex, um, uh, LGBTQ status, they, they, there's now protections against um, uh, dismissals on those bases. Um, but I will say uh, one of the things that drivers in the United States really, um, in, in some of these settlements, one of the things that they demanded, they absolutely demanded, was the right to an arbitration so that they could not be deactivated um, automatically, because what was happening was someone's ratings would fall, uh, would fall on the platform, and and it, it's actually remarkable to see what will get you kicked off of the platform. You think, oh well, if someone's getting one stars all the time, yeah, they should be gone. This isn't one stars. This is if you fall below a four point seven out of five stars, and a lot of people I don't think know that. You know, I'm always very careful when 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 in a situation in which I've got to use an app to always rate five stars for the worker. Uh, unless maybe somehow it's, you know, it, it never it never showed up or something like that. Uh, but everybody gets five stars from me because I know, you know, 4.7 stars will get you kicked off. And you get deactivated. You don't, you don't necessarily get a lot of notice. And so this has changed just in a response to many of the lawsuits that have been happening for employee status. As part of the settlements, they don't get an employee status, but they'll get some uh, payment back. And then, um, you know, this was the uh, O'Connor... Um, and uh, Kyle versus Lyft cases in California in 2015, 2016. Um, they did negotiate for arbitration before they would be dismissed, uh, before they would be deactivated. So in, in a sense, they got more rights than most American workers actually have to have some kind of, you know, the analog um, in, in many countries is the employment tribunal, right? You, you go to see the employment tribunal if you've got um, you know, what's considered an unfair dismissal, the employee feels it's unfair. And we don't have a system like that in the US. So sorry, that was maybe a long answer. Uh, well, no, no, <laughs> um, um, was the um, last opportunity, anybody wants to, to join the debate? All right, well, thanks very much, Miriam, for, for, for a really excellent, uh, illuminating and, and incisive presentation. Um, and I see there are some nice comments coming up from our participants. You know, thanks very much. We're glad to have had you as part of our central program and hope this, this can 
you know, be, be, be the beginning of ongoing cooperation with you on this area, because we obviously are both institutes are, are tackling similar problems. So, so thanks very much for that and have a, have a good day. Um, Thank all you, right. Thanks very much, everybody. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye -bye.